G'day guys, uh, we are continuing in our, our sermon series on the covenant and we are now at the Mosaic Covenant and we're in um, part two of the Mosaic Covenant. We've actually got another one that's coming next week, part three, and I think I'm wrapping up at part three. As far as I'm aware, part three is where we're going to go. Um, but last week we saw God execute his judgment on the nation of Egypt. Uh, he compelled them with a mighty hand to release Israel from servitude and he showered upon them plague after plague after plague. And we learned that these things are not just for the physical nation of Egypt, but we learned that they were for, uh, they were against the spiritual powers, the principalities that deceived and misled that nation. And God showed them that He is the one and only, the Most High, the sovereign King over heaven and earth. And none of these pretender gods were anything even close to Him. News of their salvation had spread across the ancient world. The Canaanite peoples were terrified now that these people had just been wrestled out of Egypt and were coming for them. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he hears about it and he comes out to meet them. And listen to how he viewed the situation, Exodus 18, 10-12. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under their hand of the Egyptians. In verse 11, very interesting. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Fascinating what he says there, isn't it? And what characterized the gods of Egypt, according to Jethro? Arrogance. They thought that they could hinder, they could corrupt, or even stop what God was doing. They thought that they could somehow come out against God and beat Him. Well, the powers of Egypt have overstepped their bounds. They tried to prevent God from achieving His plans, and they got smoked in the process. They're gone. They're humiliated. They're defeated. And what happens in the Canaanite lands? What do you think the people there are thinking? What do you think the gods there are thinking? terrified. We find ourselves now, we're going to be looking at what you can consider the infant Israel, the nation as a child, rescued out of slavery, brought out by a mighty hand across the Red Sea. We saw a baptism of salvation for them, but a baptism of judgment for the Egyptians who were destroyed when God brought the waters together. Hosea 11.1 says, when Israel was a child, that is right now, what we're reading right now, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. They were to be a son to God. They were to be his people. They were to have an identity and a connection to him. And they ought to be steeped in a culture saturated with the God of Israel. But that is what we find here. We find a people with no clear identity, with no connection to their God, and steeped in the practice and culture of Egypt. But God was going to change that. Because God didn't want a little Egypt. In fact, he could have chosen Egypt if he wanted to choose the Egyptians to be his people. But he wanted a nation for himself, a people for his treasured possession who were like him, who were good, who were righteous, who were holy. I've got four points that I want to walk through today with you guys. Number one is the provision of the Lord. Number two, the covenant of the Lord. Number three, the rebellion against the Lord. And number four, the mercy of the Lord. So, 
We all know where we are. Israel is now across the Red Sea safely. That song that we talked about in our service, that Moses sung, he sung that with all of Israel, this great, wonderful celebration. Look what God has done for us. He overthrew the horse and his rider. The rightful response to any great salvation of God is what? Worship, celebration. Jesus says when one sinner repents, there is great rejoicing in heaven. How much more for us when salvation reaches someone, our response ought to be worship. You can read all about it in Exodus 15, this lyrically brilliant song written by Moses in order to worship the God who had rescued them. And I want to highlight a couple of the stanzas for you, or a few more than a couple. Verse 2 to 3, he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. And we are introduced here to a very important aspect of God. He's a man of war. A man of war. He fights the battles for his people. He protects them. He is their mighty fortress. We sing about this in a lot of our songs. He's our refuge. We sung in our song just before. Just as uh, he promised Abraham to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, he promised in Genesis 15:1, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And he has shown it right here. He will fight for his people. He will not let them be overthrown. He will not let them fall to the sword. In verse 11, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Go to verse 13 and 14. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Pangs, that's the word that, I guess, contractions that women feel just before they give birth, that feeling of terror in your gut. Why? Because God has shown himself to be far superior to these fallen angels, these gods who rule over the nations, masquerading as gods, deceiving the nations to whom God had allotted to them. They were ruling unjustly, and most importantly, They were accepting worship from the nations that they rule. God had had enough of them. The fame of Israel was spreading across the known world. And every nation knows that Israel is a threat to be reckoned with. And you would expect that to have a a certain quality about the the nation of Israel, right? That that to transform the nation of Israel. That to uh, create certain characteristics by which we can look at the nation of Israel and see them full of faith and full of gratitude and full of hope in the God who had saved them. But I know a lot of you have read the book of Exodus, right? It's excruciatingly painful to read that book. Like, so difficult. I must have read it a couple of times this week and man, instead of gratitude, what do we find? Complaining. Instead of faith, skepticism. Instead of hope, there is doubt. And it's just mind-boggling. It's like you just saw the Red Sea part. You just saw these wonderful miracles. You saw all that God had done to Egypt. And what did they do? Grumble. We see in the story, immediately afterwards, they have this great celebration. They start trekking into the wilderness. They see a spring of water that's bitter, probably meaning it's full of salt water. They can't drink it. They can't give it to their livestock. And so, 
What would you do in that situation? Maybe trust that the God who brought you out of Egypt is not going to let you perish in the wilderness? Well, that is not what the Israelites do. Instead, they grumble, they complain. And Moses prays to God, and God turns the water sweet after Moses throws a log in there. Next, they begin to get hungry, and they just saw what God has done for them with this water, right? What happens when they get hungry? They don't rely on God. Here's what they say, Exodus 16, 2-3. It says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out to this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Amazing. Do you know what they're saying here? The Egyptians, those old guys, our old masters, they're providing for us a lot more than this new master is. They did a better job at keeping our bellies full than this new master is. If God had just planned to come and kill us in the wilderness, why not just kill us in Egypt? What's the big deal? At least we could have died in Egypt with a full stomach. Do you know what that is? Blatant disrespect. That's what that is. Blatant disrespect to Moses and to Aaron and to the God that they represented. You have to know that they have only experienced God in the sense of hearing God's voice through Moses and Aaron. They've experienced the great wonders of God, the great miracles of God, but they've never heard God speak to them. They have only seen through Moses what God has done. And so they feel kind of like God could be pushed around, just like they're able to push around old Moses here. They weren't able to trust God in the bad times. And before we cast judgment on the Israelites, uh, how often do we do the same? Something goes wrong. A bad situation comes up in our life and we have known that God has been faithful to us. He has blessed us. He has come alongside us for most of our life. He has walked us through some terrible things and something terrible happens. What happens then? Do we doubt His goodness? Do we doubt His promise? I've seen people walk away from the faith sometimes for the most minor of inconveniences. I saw a young fellow walk away from the faith because he couldn't not date this non-Christian girl. And so he decided, well, see you later, Jesus. This is too hard for me. Mankind are fickle, foolish creatures. And you think at this point, God's like, what kind of people did I rescue? But no, he doesn't say that. He provides. They doubt him. They think that he brought them out to the wilderness to just abandon them there, but he provides an amazing way. He rains upon them bread from heaven called manna. I'm sure you guys know this story. And every morning they get up and there's the manna on the ground. Every evening quails flood the camp and they can pick them up and there's their meat. They can gather as much as they need. They will never go hungry. They will never cease to have bread. But he says, don't store any up, because if you store any of this bread up, it's going to go rancid. And what do you think the Israelites do? Ah, Moses, we'll just store it up. We'll see what happens. And they find the, this bread goes rancid overnight. Worms begin to, to eat it. 
And this means that day by day in the middle of a parched, dry desert, their only hope for survival day by day comes from the Lord's provision. They have to trust that when they wake up the next morning, there's the bread. Because if the bread's not there, they're going to be in trouble. If the bread doesn't show up, they're going to starve in the wilderness. They have to rely on God every single day. It reminds me of what Jesus tells us to pray, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because there is no promise for tomorrow's provision, only today's. We rely on God every day for every good blessing we have. There is not a single good thing that you have received today that did not come from the hand of God. Every provision is given by Him. The Israelites thought that in Egypt, they provided for themselves or the Egyptians provided for them. But God provided for them every day when they were in Egypt too. And so they move on from there. From where there was abundant water, they go on towards Mount Sinai. And once again, they get thirsty because they've moved away from their water. And you would think that after all God has done by this point, that they would trust God. But once again, what do we see? Grumbling. But now some pretty wild accusations get thrown around that God plans to kill them in the wilderness again to the point that they're so worked up that Moses is afraid they're going to kill him. He's like, God, what am I going to do with these people? They're about to stone me. You see, Moses, they were pushing him around. They weren't really that afraid of Moses. They weren't really that scared of him. In fact, every time they pushed him around before, they kind of got what they wanted. And so they push him around again. And they tested the Lord again and again. You'd think at this point, number three, third strike and you're out. That's not how it happens. Do you know what God does? He provides water from the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Water flows out. A third time, God was gracious. Now, I'm not sure if this is a a legit connection, but it reminded me of Peter before the Sanhedrin. Three times he denied the Lord. He denied the Lord's goodness. But like Peter, God forgave. And he directed Moses to strike the rock. Water gushed forth. And again and again, God has sustained his people, even though they were so vile. And many people read Exodus thinking that God is vengeful and angry. But that's not what I read when I read Exodus. I see a God who again and again and again is long-suffering with a wicked people. And God provides for them one more time. Lastly, the Amalekites come. You see, the nations in Canaan have heard what has happened. And they know that Israel is going to come and dispossess them. They know that this is going to happen. And so they think, we better nip this in the bud right now. This ragtag bunch of slaves in the wilderness, we've got to strike while the iron's hot. We're going to ride our huge army of trained soldiers into the desert, and we're going to crush these slaves well before they can get organized. And so they send this huge army in. And what happens? Well, this ill-equipped... I mean, Josephus talks about how they had to pick up weapons from the Egyptian army on the shore. This ill-equipped army, this small army never fought before, go out and defeat a well-trained, disciplined, battle-hardened Amalekite army. And every time Moses holds up his staff, they win, but every time he lowers his hands, they begin to start losing again. And so people have to help him hold his arm up for the entire battle. But every time, God is showing them that I will provide for you. I will defeat all of your enemies. 
I will show you my glory. I will save you well before you even deserve it, well before you even earn it. So, wow, that's a lot of provision. God has done a lot for them. Like, considering my last sermon, considering everything we've just learned about now, and here they are, they've come to Mount Sinai. And God is going to formalize His covenant with them. They're going to present themselves before the Lord, and He's going to turn them into a nation. His people. That's my second point, the covenant of the Lord. Exodus 19, verses 1 to 2. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness and there Israel encamped before the mountain. Now the Israelites have spent roughly three months now in the wilderness, relying daily on the provision of their Lord. And now the sign that God has given to Moses All that time ago, you remember in the burning bush, he says, Moses, here is your sign that this will all happen. You see this mountain on which you're standing. You will bring the whole nation here. The most remote location you could possibly think of. They will all come here. Fulfilled. Here, right in front of Moses. God is faithful. The seemingly impossible had happened. Just that God had promised to an elderly man with no children to be the father of many nations. So also God had rescued an entire nation and brought them into a hostile wilderness, fed and watered, ready to stand before him. And listen to what God says to them in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here God sets them apart as his covenant people. He tells them what their new identity is. You are not slaves. You are my treasured possession. In all the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, but you guys are special. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And how did Israel respond? Verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They've now entered into covenant with God as a nation. And like all the covenants before, God has made promises. He then worked salvation, and then he formally administrates his covenant with his people. We saw that with Noah. We saw that with Abraham. And now we're going to see it with the Israelites. And why? Well, the purpose of the covenant is to bless. God makes a covenant here with Israel to turn them into a holy nation, a beacon to the world, to show everyone it's like to belong to the, Lord, to the Lord in truth. You've got to remember that this is God's mission to save the world. You are going to be the nation through which I will save the world. You're going to be a nation of justice, of prosperity, of life, of godliness. And so far, the Israelites... They've only related to God through Moses, as I've said. But now that was about to change. God was going to come and meet them on that mountain. He was going to speak to them. And He descends upon the mountain in a thick, fiery cloud that made the mountain melt and smoke. I've got got an old school uh, drawing of it. For the first time, 
the people realized who God was. He wasn't merely some spirit being like the gods of Egypt. He really was the maker of the heavens and the earth. And he was terrifying. And out of the smoke, what Steve read for us, the Lord spoke to them all, the Ten Commandments. And the sound of the Lord was just terrifying. They trembled before him. They were to follow these laws, and by doing so, they would keep his covenant. The first four of those commandments can be summarized, the Lord Jesus tells us, as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The bottom six can be summarized as loving your neighbor as yourself. And every single one of those commandments in God's law can be traced back to those two commandments that, God, uh, that Jesus says. And so the Ten Commandments that Steve read out for us, all the Israelites have now heard it. And what do they say? Exodus 20, 19, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. We'll listen now. We weren't listening before, but we'll listen now. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. It's ironic, isn't it? For the whole journey to Mount Sinai, all they did was refuse to listen to Moses. And now when God, God finally speaks to them, we want the old deal back. We want Moses back. God is too terrifying. And often, a lot of people relate to God through someone else. Someone else mediates God to them. They like to learn about God. They like to hear about God. They like to get direction in their life but they don't come before God. They don't realize that they can walk up the mountain with Moses, now in Christ. They still want a Moses. They still want a mediator. And the Israelites want Moses back. But this is their God. They're to worship no other than him, because he alone is worthy of all worship. And anything else is a phrase we know as idolatry. He tells them to make no graven image or likeness of anything in this world. For everything in this world is created. Nothing can represent the creator. There is nothing that we can fashion. There is nothing that we can create. There is no image that we can look at and say, yes, that is our God. Because God is the maker of all of those things. And this is so important because this was foundational to Israel keeping the covenant with God. And listen, it is true for us too. There is no room in the new covenant for idolatry. We don't get to worship other gods. We don't get to make God into an image and then worship that image, pretending it's God. Idolatry is breaking covenant with God, regardless of whether you're in the old or new. You've got to understand what idolatry was. Uh, the ancient man, here's their view of idolatry. Here's what they th thought that they were doing. They would make an idol. So they would fashion an idol. They would get a really skilled craftsman to make this beautiful image. They did not think that they were making a god. We have to understand that. What they thought that they were doing was making a representative with which to communicate to a god. The thinking went like this. You know, the gods are in the heavens and they're spiritual beings. And we want to talk with them. We want to interact with them. They're not uh, omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere. We have to try to get them to come to us. And so what we need to do is we need to make them a body. And so that's what they do. They go out and they try to make a beautiful body, something that the data would come down and be like, that's pretty impressive, fellas. You did a good job with that one. And then the deity would come and kind of indwell the idol. And then they would barter with it. They would perform rituals in front of it 
and they would bow down and worship it. The Egyptians would perform these things called the opening of the mouth ceremony. There's a, there's a picture of it. And then you've got the idol, the statue here, a couple of statues here. And they would perform these rituals where they would open the mouth of the idol. And that was when they considered the idol to now be inhabited by the actual deity themselves. This is what the Israelites were used to. These are the temples they would walk in and then offer their tribute to these gods and they would bow down before these gods. This was non-threatening stuff. Okay, this wasn't scary like what they were encountering on Mount Sinai. This stuff was pretty simple to understand. And so they would come before these gods, they would barter with them, they would seek their protection, they would try to communicate with them. But God here in the Ten Commandments absolutely bans his people from doing this at all. Why? You cannot make God into an image. God will not be tamed. You have to understand that. God will not be tamed. You do not bring him to you. You come to him. You obey him. He doesn't come to you and he doesn't obey you. You have to understand this. He will not be worshipped your way. God is the maker of the heavens and the earth. No idol can contain him. No image can convey his glory. It's absolutely insulting to God to think that you can localize him, you can place him somewhere, and then somehow trade and barter with him. That he will listen to you. That's what idolatry is. And he's saying you cannot do that. So many churches do that today. They try to pretend that you can localize him in a, in a church service as if he wasn't already omnipresent. They pretend that if you use this right incantation in your prayers, if you declare certain things, if you say enough that this is in Jesus' name, God is bound to, worship, uh, to, to um, uh, answer your prayer and do what you say. But you cannot believe that, not even for a second, why God will not be tamed. He does not obey us. He delights to give us good gifts. But have you ever seen how offensive it is if you see a son demanding that his father do things for him? You watch the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and you see that little girl ordering her father around. And we look at that and we think, yeah, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to relate to him like that. That is just not true. You know what it is? Idolatry. Idolatry. For the Israelites, idolatry is less terrifying. And it's still true today. It's far less terrifying than whatever, whatever was happening on that mountain in front of them. We come to a really sad passage now in Exodus. It's my third point, the rebellion against the Lord. But before the sad stuff happens, there's some good stuff. Exodus 20, verses 20 to 21. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Listen to that. What is happening on that mountain is good for them. The fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Never lose that sense of fear. Verse 21 says, the people stood afar off. I didn't want to go anywhere near that mountain. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You've got to understand what's happening right now. Moses is walking into a flaming inferno. Right? By faith. Because do you know what happened if we walked into a flaming inferno? Incinerated, right? Just like 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were alive in that flaming furnace, so also is Moses walking into a place where no human being could survive. He trusted God. He felt the heat. He heard the terrifying booming of that thunder. And Moses relied on God to keep him safe. For 40 days and 40 nights, with no food and no water. It's impossible outside of a miracle. It's impossible outside of the sustenance of God. That's exactly what God does here. He protects him. Because man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there in the inferno, Moses speaks with God. And God gives to him more of the law. And you can read about that. We don't have time to go through it all. But you can read about this conversation that Moses has with God in this flaming inferno. He shows Moses how to treat people with justice. He clarifies and he expands on his Ten Commandments. He shows Moses what a just nation looks like, how to interact with families, how to worship before him. And most interestingly, he gives to him the tabernacle and the exact measurements of it. And exactly how it's supposed to be, exactly how it's supposed to come out. And you are to build this. Now, this tabernacle will come to look like this thing, which is actually my third photo, Chris. Sorry, mate. This is what the measurements would turn into. As you can see, there's an American football field, which is not actually, I think it's like roughly the same size as our football field. It's not that big. It's really not that big. It's, a, it's an impressive structure for the time. And what would happen is it's, a, it's an area for the people of Israel to come and worship before God and to offer their sacrifices. They would come into this court. They would bring into this court the animal that they want to sacrifice. There are many tables there. That's where the priest would uh, butcher the animal and cut it into the various parts. And in the middle there is that brazen altar, which had a grate over the top of it, and underneath the grate was a fire. And you would take the portions that God was to have and you would throw them in there. In fact, that you could throw multiple portions from multiple animals in at the same time because you could have, I don't know how many tables they had, but you could have a lot of tables functioning at the same time. And so people could be coming in again and again and again and offering all their sacrifices. But in the inner sanctum, the, the Holy of Holies, the holy place that was only for the priests, the people of Israel were never allowed to go in there. The priests were the only ones who were allowed to go in there. And they were the ones who offered sacrifice on behalf of the nation. They were the representatives of the people. And one of the most interesting things about the tabernacle is the design of it. Uh, God often used imagery that was accessible to the people at the time. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, what did God do when he made a covenant with Abraham? He said, Abraham, gather to me some animals and cut them in half. It was a common covenant of the time. And so uh, God used something that, was, that Abraham was well aware of in order to make his covenant with him. And likewise, God designs this tabernacle to bear a remarkable resemblance to the war camp of Pharaoh. It's actually very fascinating. So if you go to my first picture, Chris, another one before that. Here is Ramesses II, his war camp. Now that looks rather familiar, doesn't it? And right in the middle, here is his tent right there, and the two-winged falcons. Very fascinating stuff. In fact, Ramesses II, who this is drawn of, is probably the most likely candidate to, for the, be, to be the pharaoh that was around during the time of Moses. I mean, there's other candidates, but he is one of the more preferred ones. Have a look at the next slide. Here we've got Ramesses II's camp, and we've got the tabernacle. And then there's the temple a bit later. Very, very similar. Why are they similar? Well, God used something that the Israelites were well aware of. He said, you're going to make for me a war camp. 
Why? Because fellas were going to war. Israel was his army. And here I am, residing in the midst of the army, just as Pharaoh resided in the midst of his army, except you saw him get overthrown. And we've got a job to do. Immediately after Mount Sinai and the covenant was gratified, you know what they were supposed to do? March straight into the promised land and overthrow it. Dispossess those nations with the war camp of Yahweh in the middle of them all. Just as Moses said, God and of war. It's why through the book of Judges and the conquest of David, do you know what they took everywhere with them? The Ark of the Covenant. Why did they take it to battle? Because it was God's war camp. You wanted to go to battle with the Lord there with you. It's a symbol of God's covenantal faithfulness, not just his nearness to his people, but his military might and his commitment to fulfilling all the requirements of the covenant. And the people of Israel would have immediately recognized this. And while God is speaking so clearly to Moses and describing him to what the nation looks like and how he's going to be with them wherever they go, and just to show you how much I'm going to be with you, you make me a war camp and I will inhabit it. And everywhere you go, you know I'm with you and I will fight with you and I will make sure that you will prevail. While this is all happening, this wonderful meeting between Moses and the God of uh, the heavens and the earth, the people of Israel are panicking. Moses has been gone a long time, 40 days, well, probably 39 days, actually. And this is where this great part of Exodus, where we get this perfect and holy law and the measurements of the tabernacle is just interrupted. And it's interrupted by something terrible. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves, literally gathered, almost like gathered to war against Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that you brought us, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And he received the gold from their hand, verse 4, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And verse 6, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Roughly 39, 40 days, Moses has been gone to a place where no man can survive. And at this point, they gather themselves to Aaron, literally like gathering against him for war, and they corner Aaron Just as they pushed Moses around, they're going to push Aaron around. And they say, Aaron, we don't like this deal. We want to worship God the way that we're used to. Make for us an idol. And this is where the Hebrew is very hard to translate. Whenever Hebrew refers to God, it uses what is called the majestic plural. That is, whenever God is referred to, he's referred to as a plural, as if he's multiple. Because that's how the... um, the Hebrew language uses to describe someone of, of great majesty, of great um, importance, of great significance. And so the question is, are they saying in this one golden calf, there are multiple gods present in it? Or is this a representation of the God that they are now to worship? The God that had taken them out of Egypt. It's a very hard section to work out. And I'm not going to bore you with all the Hebrew details. If anyone wants to talk to me about it afterwards, I do have my reasoning behind it. But personally, I will let Nehemiah tell us, because he knows a lot more about Hebrew than I do, what is happening here. Nehemiah 9.18. He says, They had made for themselves a golden calf and said, 
This is your God singular who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You see, that makes sense, doesn't it? Meeting with God on Sinai and that fire and that blaze is terrifying. And Moses has gone so long, they're pretty sure he's dead. We don't know what we're supposed to do anymore. They start to panic. They go back to what they're used to. Why do we have to communicate? Why do we have to relate to God in the way that he has said? Why can't we just make an image for him? Why can't we just worship him the way that we're used to? It's far less intimidating to just have an idol of the Lord. But God will not be tamed. He will not reside in an idol to be bartered with, and he will not condescend to an image made in the likeness of his own creations. You've got to understand, in the mind of the Israelites, they're actually trying to be respectful to God. They're failing completely. In fact, they're completely blasphemous. But a calf in the ancient world was a symbol of power and strength and military prowess. It's like, what's the big deal, God? You know, look what we've done for you. It's solid gold. Look how wonderful this thing is. We've given up all our wealth to make this. But we don't get to tell God how he is to be worshipped. God had told them so clearly, do not do this. It's not a request. It's not advice. This was a requirement for the covenant, which means they've broken it. It has barely been made and it's broken. The hubris of these Israelites, who only a few months ago were slaves, it's just enormous. But I get it. Our culture is steeped in this kind of thinking. We think that we can come to God on our own terms, or even worse, we demand that God would come to us. But it just doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. God won't come to us on our terms. We come to Him on His terms and His ways. And so be very careful to consider God holy in your hearts. Treat Him with utmost reverence. Why? See, God, this breaks God pretty much. You see how gracious He's been this whole time. How long-suffering He's been. And they've broken His covenant. Here's what He says, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This has been my fourth point, my last point. The mercy of the Lord. Let's keep reading, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Keep reading on. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. See, Moses pleads for the people. He makes many words of intercession. He reminds God, your covenant with Abraham. Remember your covenant with Abraham, your covenant of grace. You said you would do this. Yes, they've broken your covenant, but be gracious to them. Be merciful to them. Still forgive them. And many people, they make much of this and they think that God changes his mind. That one minute he's a certain way and the next minute he's another way. 
But we know that God doesn't change. So what's going on here? Well, God's attitude to sin is always anger. Always. Always anger. He hates sin. He hates how destructive it is. He hates how soul-shattering it is. He hates how devastating it is to us. He hates what it does to us. He hates the death that it brings upon us all. Of course he hates sin. Of course he's angry at it. But God is also merciful. And those who appeal to him can receive pardon. And this has always been true. Think of all the times that God may have seemed to change his mind. And every single time, in every one of those circumstances, it relates to judgment and mercy. Why? Because Moses appealed for mercy for the people. And he got it. He got it. God's nature didn't change. The circumstances changed. Did you notice that? God is outside of time. The circumstances within time are the things that changed. Before Moses' appeal, they would have been destroyed. Without Moses' intercession, God would have destroyed them because of his anger against sin. They were not repentant. Moses repented on their behalf. Moses interceded on their behalf. Outside of Moses' intercession, they would have been destroyed. And God would have still been faithful and he still would have fulfilled all his promises and raising up a nation in Moses. But because Moses appealed, which is a change in circumstance, not a change in God, God then extended mercy. And I wanted to highlight this because this is true for all of us, right? It's true for all of us. Before we knew Christ, we were under the hot wrath of God. And if we did not repent and believe in Christ, we would have perished in our way. The Bible says that by nature we are children of wrath. Outside of Christ, all our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before Him. If we rejected Jesus, we would die in our sins and we would fall into the hands of the living God. So what changed for us? We appealed to God's mercy and we received it. Isn't that what's happening here? Listen to how the Israelites reacted to the holiness of God. We're just going to go back to Exodus 24. I just wanted to highlight this. It says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God. That phrase there, devouring fire, ought to be translated as consuming fire merely to keep in line with what Hebrews 12 is doing. Because Hebrews 12 is bringing up this exact moment. Steve read it for us before. Here's how Hebrews speaks to us. He says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is, those who heard the warning against idolatry and still did it, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, that is, Christ. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know what Hebrews is saying? The writer of Hebrews is saying right here, do not do what those Israelites did. Our God is a consuming fire. Offer Him rightful worship, true worship. Not the way that you think with reverence and with awe. 
Hebrews is speaking about this moment, right? The voice of God speaking out. He's bringing this up and applying it to us. And he says, how will we escape the judgment of God if we reject the gospel of Christ? God warns us from heaven, requiring that all men everywhere repent and follow him. And for those who persist in idolatry or worse, for those Christians who break faith with God and profane his covenant, there is no escape. How will you escape? There is no other. The disciples said of Jesus, when Jesus said, are you guys going to go away as well? And they say, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, where else can you go? There is nowhere else. Who else is going to save you? Who else is going to rescue your soul? I mean, listen to how God disciplines Israel here. It's a harsh judgment. They do not escape. Exodus 32, 70, 27 and 28. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. 3,000 men participated in this golden calf atrocity and they died. At Sinai, God showed his holiness and anger towards sin after so much long-suffering by killing 3,000 men. There's a lot more to talk about, but we're going to do that next week. But I want to talk about what happened 1,500 years later. Jesus came to Israel. Their God appeared to them. And another act of rebellion occurred. Just as they refused the consuming fire that was on that mountain in preference of a golden calf, so they refused Jesus in preference of something else. And they murdered the Son of God without cause, the Savior of the world. But this time, God did not murder, well not murder, but kill 3,000 men. Because there was another moment when a man came before the Jews who had killed the Son of God and declared at Pentecost that you have crucified your Messiah. And what happened then? 3,000 men were saved. You see, the new covenant is better. It's better than the one that was at Sinai. The promises are more glorious. The blessings more magnificent. The hopes are everlasting. And the law of God is written, not on stone tablets up on Mount Sinai, but on the human heart. We have come to this God And we have received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we have found in Christ such a salvation. Never forget it. Do not refuse to listen to the voice. Walk up that mountain and worship your God who is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Father, how magnificent and wonderful it is to be able to walk up that mountain and meet with you. Although it is terrifying and a fearful thing to come into the Holy of Holies and to present ourselves before 
the most holy and righteous and magnificent being that there is, Lord. We know that in Christ that we can walk with confidence there. That just as Moses was protected from your burning fiery wrath, we as well know that we will be protected when we are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for anyone who is here that relates to you through other people. I pray, Lord, that you would show them in clearness that they ought to relate to you as father and son or father and daughter. That they ought to come directly to you, that they ought to seek your face in your word, to seek your name and to pray to you and to have a connection to you that is more than just a connection with a body of believers, but a connection with, that is in truth to you. I pray, Lord, that we would offer up to you worship that is reverent, that we would stand in awe, knowing that you are a consuming fire. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful word. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful works that you have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.